as we dig into Matthew. Uh, this is an excerpt from a website of an organization that all of you know very well. I'm just going to read it. Soon after beginning his ministerial career in England in 1852, William Booth abandoned the concept of traditional church pulpit in favor of taking the gospel of Jesus Christ directly to the people. Walking the streets of London, he preached to the poor, the homeless, the hungry, and the destitute. When fellow clergymen disagreed with Booth's unconventional approach, he and his wife Catherine withdrew from the church to train evangelists throughout England. The couple returned to East End of London in 1865, where many followers joined their fight for the souls of lost men and women. And within 10 years, their organization, operating under the name The Christian Mission, had over 1,000 volunteers and evangelists. Thieves, prostitutes, gamblers, and drunkards were among the first converts to Christianity. And soon, those converts were also preaching and singing in the streets as living testimonies to the power of God. When Booth read a printer's proof of the 1878 Christian Mission Annual Report, he noticed that the statement, the Christian Mission is a volunteer army. He crossed out the words volunteer army and he penned in salvation army. From those words came the basis of the foundation deed of the salvation army. From that point onward, converts converts of soldiers of Christ were known then as now as salvationists. They launched an offensive throughout the British Isles that in spite of violence and persecution, converted 250,000 Christians between 1881 and 1885. Their message spread rapidly, gaining a foothold in America and soon after, Canada, Australia, France, Switzerland, all the way through Germany. And today the Salvation Army is active in virtually every corner of the world and serves over a hundred countries, offering the message of God's healing and hope to those in need. General Booth once told his students, if I had my choice, I wouldn't send you to school. I'd send you to hell for five minutes. Then you'd come back a real soul. And I'd wager you'd come back a real evangelist too, telling people what you saw. That's what we're going to dig into today is the real evangelist, a guy who knew his message, knew his audience, and what he was supposed to say. And that is John the Baptist. But before we get to John... Luke tells us about a priest by the name of Zechariah. Now, the name Zechariah means Yahweh remembers. Yahweh remembers. Now, remember, 400 years had gone by since anybody heard her anything from God. 400 years without any prophets, anybody saying, thus saith the Lord. Had God forgotten about his people? A lot of people probably thought that at the time. It had been so long since they'd heard anything. And then we get to meet this guy, Zechariah. Now, Luke tells us that Zechariah had a wife named Elizabeth, and they both walked righteously and blamelessly before the Lord. But they were not able to have children. Now, Zechariah was a Levite. And at that time, there were so many Levites. Levites served the Lord, and they served around and in the temple, and there were so many of them, they divided them up into divisions, into groups. And you had to wait for your turn to go up and serve around the temple because there were so many. And so one day it was his division's turn. They got to go up and serve on the temple mount. And what they would, day, what they would do is each day in the morning and in the evening, Someone would go into the temple, the actual temple, the holy place, and they would offer incense to the Lord at morning and in the evening. And they would choose who got to go in by lot or by lottery. They would pick a name out of a hat. And one day, 
they picked Zachariah's name out of a hat. His division was on was on uh, duty, and they chose his name out of the hat. Now, this would have been obviously a huge deal. You could go your whole lifetime and not get chosen to be one of them that goes in and offers incense. So they pull his name out. And when he goes in, when he's at the altar, remember, 400 years, nobody had heard anything from the Lord, and an angel appears before him at the altar of incense. And here's what happened. This is Luke 1.11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. To make for him a people prepared. Not just any angel. This is Gabriel, God's messenger. I think it's pretty cool that God sent his messenger to tell Zechariah that he was going to have a messenger. Zechariah had waited his whole life for this moment. And Gabriel appears. And unfortunately, he doesn't believe what Gabriel told him, which is really weird to me. Like, this is your whole job. How do you not believe when an angel stands in front of you? Why did he not believe? Well, Zechariah and his wife did, in fact, pray for a baby. But it had been years, like maybe even decades since they prayed that prayer. Because at this point... They were beyond the age of having kids. They were old. But can I say that just because your prayer hasn't been answered doesn't mean that we should stop praying. Like we should keep praying even when our our prayer hasn't been answered. Now, obviously, no is just as much an answer as yes. But if we haven't gotten an answer, we should keep praying. And God answered their prayer even though it was many, many years later. Now, fast forward to a day when The day finally arrives. The baby boy, John, is to be born. Everyone is expecting at that point for them to name him Zechariah Jr., to name him after his dad. But Elizabeth says, no, no, we're going to name him John. And everybody starts to freak out. They say, well, you can't name him John. There's nobody in your family named John. This would have been against tradition. You would have named him after some other male in your family line. And so Zechariah Because he did not believe, the angel said, you are not going to be able to speak until the birth of your son. Like you will not be able to talk. So for nine months, he couldn't say anything. He just simply wrote. He wrote a bunch and he had this tablet that he would write on and he motioned for a tablet so that he could write down his name is John. And when he held it out, as soon as he had written it, the Lord loosed his tongue and the words came out of his mouth. His name is John, which means Yahweh has been gracious. So first Yahweh remembered, and now Yahweh is gracious. He's gracious because he is sending a messenger before his people. He's been silent for 400 years, but now all of that's going to change because of this baby boy. And this is what his father, Zechariah, prophesied over his child. This is important for all parents. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sun shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel." He's going to go before the Lord to prepare the way and give knowledge of salvation to the people. He's the messenger. In a real sense, he is the last prophet of the Old Testament, the last Old Testament prophet. But the last one that we read of is a guy by the name of Malachi. And Malachi prophesies chapter 4, verse 5, Behold, I will send Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. John is a fulfillment of this word. So he was a Levite, obviously. So he should have been serving at the temple, but that's not what he did. He didn't walk in the temple. He lived in the wilderness. He lived out in the desert. That's kind of weird that he would give up working in the temple to go out in the desert. But God often sent his prophets out into the desert, out to be by themselves. He called them out to be separate, to be different, to be holy. And John was a different kind of guy, very different. First of all, he wore camel skins. That's what he wore. Uh, Now, leather's pretty cool, right? Unless you're standing in the water all day and then getting out in the hot sun and then get back in the water and then back out. You can imagine, I don't know if you know what happens to leather when you get it wet and then you dry it repeatedly. It's kind of more like sandpaper than suede, if you know what I mean. It would have been uncomfortable for him to do this. He didn't have a whole closet full of camel hair suits, so he wasn't into the comfort life. And then second of all, we're told that he ate grasshoppers with honey. Now, I'm, I'm sure he was dunking the grasshoppers in the honey. I hope that would have been a difficult one to get down. Um, so that made me curious. You'd be amazed what you can find on Amazon. (laughs) I have some fried grasshoppers here. If anybody wants to be brave enough to try these. I tried one last night. (laughs) It's not good. (laughs) It was the highest rated one, though. They're dusted with, like, chili powder. So if you like spicy grasshoppers, you can give it a shot. I thought that was interesting. I was just uh, curious. But John was a different kind of guy. He went around eating bugs pretty meager meal, no matter how you prepare it. But he was different. He was what uh, they call in church circles, a PK. Uh, We said, we call that a pastor's kid. A PK is a pastor's kid. He was a priest's kid having a dad who was a priest. So he should have followed in his footsteps, but he diverted from his father's earthly ministry so that he could follow his heavenly father's ministry to be a prophet. And the task he was given was to prepare the way. So we'll read our text today. This is going to be Matthew 3. We're going to do verses 1 through 12. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. 
But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves that we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. Back in ancient times, a herald was sent out when the king was coming. When the king's caravan was on the way, they sent out a herald to tell people that the king was on his way and also to prepare the path. They were to make sure that the road was clear, that there weren't any obstacles if the road needed to be repaired, then they would do that before the king got there. And they would also let everybody know to get ready because the king's arrival is imminent. In a real sense, you could say that these guys were road builders. They were the guys that were preparing a path for the king to arrive. And that's what John was doing. His ministry had an urgency to it. The message was repent. The king is on his way. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, repent was a military term. It meant to change direction. If you were going one way and they said repent, then you would actually turn around and go the opposite way. Now, his message was kind of harsh. It was brief. It was, you better repent. You'd better get right with the Lord. Why was it so harsh? It wasn't seeker sensitive. It wasn't touchy-feely. Because the predominant thought about the Messiah's kingdom at that time is that it was going to be one of military might, that it was going to be one of political peace and personal prosperity. Might and peace and prosperity. Kind of sounds like the American prosperity gospel that gets preached all across the world today. Um, we're going to have might militarily. We're going to be secure and we're going to have peace. Things are just going to be peaceful politically, and we just want everybody to feel good. And then there's going to be a time of personal prosperity. Everybody's going to do well because God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and wise. The message today isn't as much repent as it was back then. It was very clear cut. Why aren't churches in America preaching a message of repentance? I'll give you a couple reasons why I think that that might be the case. The first is a lack of realization of personal sin. <clears throat> we tend to be very good at pointing out other people's sin, but we're pretty soft with ourselves. We're really good with other people because what we do is we judge other people on their actions, on what we see them doing, but we judge ourselves based on um, our intentions. So we judge other people by what they do, but ourselves by, well, that's not what I meant, or I was going to do that, or I meant to do that. So we judge ourselves based on our intentions. And what we should do is flip that around and judge ourselves more harshly based on our actions to give other people the benefit of the doubt is what we should do. Because we don't face the depths of our depravity or we try to level the playing field by saying, you know, you're okay, I'm okay. We're all, you know, okay, it's all right. We're all kind of in the same boat. We try to level the field that way. Uh, there's a TV, there's a scene from a TV show that I used to watch. Uh, called Seinfeld back before I was saved. And, <laughs> and there's a scene where 
the two guys, Jerry, who is the skinny guy, right? He's skinny. And he's talking to his best friend, George, who could stand to lose a few pounds. And he's concerned that he's gaining weight. And he says, you know, do I look like I'm gaining weight to you? And George looks at him. He says, are you kidding? We look great. <laughs> so he doesn't want to face like what's going on with himself. He lumps himself in with Jerry to say, you know, hey, it's level playing field, man. We look great. Doesn't want to face his own issue. So sometimes it's our lack of personal the realization of our personal sin, why we don't preach the message of repentance. Or the second is a fear of man. We're afraid that we might hurt people's feelings, that we might step on their toes, that if we preach a message of repentance, they may not like us or they may leave the church. But you see, this isn't a country club. This isn't a social gathering. This is a place where we hold the truth high. We hold the mirror of the truth up and we say, this is the standard and it's not moving and we need to adjust our lives accordingly. And if you're not liking that, then you need to take it up with God, but the standard's not going to move. It's not going to change. We need to hold up the mirror of the word. We need to not be afraid of what man might think, what man might say. We need to hold up the truth. We're made right when we repent, when we ask for forgiveness. Then we're restored and we're clothed in his righteousness. See, if I stand up here and I tell you that you need to repent, that your life needs to get in line with what the word says, and then you walk out and you reject that message, I don't have to feel bad because I've done my job as a shepherd. I have given the warning. You need to get your life right with Jesus. Because if I'm not doing that, if I'm saying, you know what? God loves you just as you are. You don't have to change. He's going to meet you where you are. Not preach a message of repentance, of change. Then I'm just letting you walk out the door to the slaughterhouse, basically, because I'm not preaching the truth to you. And the last thing I want to do is have to stand before God on judgment day and have him ask me, Nathan, why did you not let, why did you let people in your congregation live in sin and not warn them about the consequences and me be able to just stand there and say, my only excuse would be, I didn't want to hurt people's feelings. Because I didn't want to hurt people's feelings, I didn't preach the message of the truth. I would rather preach repentance and the message of the truth and have you be offended than to leave here and not heed the warning that is in the gospel, the, the message that John is preaching to the people in Jerusalem. As a pastor, okay, and as a body, we need to find our voice when it comes to living with people that are stubbornly marching in the wrong direction, whether it be friends, whether it be family, and not stand by. Um, I've been preaching this to myself all week. <laughs> so before I get up here on Sundays, I get to say this to myself over and over again. So trust me, this is, it's not an easy thing to do, to be the person that is uh, going to be unpopular because of the opinion, because of the truth that we bring forward, but it's necessary. That's what we're called to do. We're not all called to be evangelists, but we all are called to lift up the truth and to speak the truth in love. John was that voice, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's interesting to me because the disciple, the apostle John, starts out his gospel this way. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that, it might, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. 
John was the voice and he was speaking the word. He was speaking about the word. He was speaking to people about Jesus. Speaking a message of repentance. Even Jesus started off his ministry with a message of repentance. In Matthew 4, 17, it says, From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Luke 5, 32, it says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That was Jesus' message as well. After 400 years of silence, John enters the scene, and it's not a message of comfort and joy. The angels came and they delivered the message of comfort and joy to the shepherds. But now that the kingdom is here, the message is warning and rebuke. See, because the people of that day, they thought all they needed to do was just wait around for it. We're just waiting around for the Messiah. We're already in. We're in the family. We're God's chosen people. We're just waiting for him to show up. And they believed that every Jew was destined for the kingdom, but every Gentile, everybody else was destined for destruction. And when John came along, he was shattering that mindset and saying, just because you're of a you know, specific race of people doesn't get you a free pass. And just because our parents or our family members are Christians doesn't give us a free pass. And that is the message that John was bringing to the people in that day. And that's exactly what he told the religious people when they show up in the wilderness to hear him preach. And it's funny because you can hear the sarcasm in John's voice when he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you all to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance and do not presume to say that we have Abraham as our father because he can raise up children of Abraham from the rocks on the ground. See, these guys weren't there to repent. They were there to check on him, to see what was going on. Now, prophets were usually opposed to the religious systems of their day. They usually went in to call out the religious leaders, call them out of complacency, to call them out of religiosity and ritual because it's more than just outward religion. It has to be an inward conviction that manifests itself outwardly in what we call fruit. That's the evidence that your life is submitted to the Lord and that it's changed. See, the Pharisees had lots of leaves on their tree, but they didn't have much fruit. It's kind of like we used to have a tree. It was called a Bradford pear. And Bradford pears are terrible trees. Uh, Builders use them a lot because they're cheap and they grow fast And they look nice, right? Even in the springtime, they flower and they smell good. But when the storms come, they split. That's what happened to ours. After a season, it broke in two. So it's kind of like that. There's no fruit on the tree. It doesn't give anybody any nourishment. It just kind of looks nice, but it wilts in a storm. John, though, John was pretty fruity. He had lots of fruit. He was the reason why people were coming from all over the place just to hear him preach. Now, if you were a church planning consultant, you would tell John, Listen, John, you're doing it all wrong. Like you're way too far out there. You need to be closer to Jerusalem. You need to be closer where the action is. That way you can build up a following. Location, location's important. That's the reason why we meet here. Because it's so easy to find. (laughs) John, you're doing it wrong. But the reason we're going out there because that's where the spirit was moving. See, where God is, that's where true worshipers want to be. That's where they should be. That's why the Magi, the Magi traveled traveled all that way because they were trying to find the king. Where is the king? That's where we want to be. And that's where the spirit is moving is where the true worshipers are. And these people were going out to be baptized. 
This doesn't seem like a very strange thing to us because we're familiar with baptism, but back then it would have been really weird. Uh, the only people that got baptized were Gentiles. Gentiles were baptized if they wanted to be in the Jewish faith. They had to be baptized. And John's was a baptism of repentance. The only people that were using water in religious ceremonies of that day were the Pharisees and the priests. And all their washings were ceremonial. They were just part of their ritual and they did them all the time. Uh, but John's was a one-time thing. He said, I'm going to baptize you as a cleansing for repentance. Because it doesn't matter what your pedigree is. doesn't matter who you are on the outside. This is something that is going to be reflective of an inner change. Only repentance and trust in the Lord for salvation is going to work. That's all that's going to save you. That's why he tells the religious people, it doesn't matter if you're a son of Abraham. It doesn't matter. Because God can raise up children from Ab- for Abraham from anywhere. That's why when we studied in Habakkuk, that one verse that has rocked so many people through the ages, that crucial verse, the righteous shall live by his faith. The person that's righteous, the person that's made right with God will live by their faith. Abraham believed the word of the Lord. It was counted to him as righteousness. He wasn't the father of works. He wasn't the father of religiosity. He was the father of faith. And if you have faith, you're a child of Abraham and you're in the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven has two aspects. It has an outer aspect and an inner one. Now, the outer aspect Um, are the ones that confess and act like believers, right? Confess that they're in the kingdom. But this includes both real Christians and false Christians, fake believers. And it's really hard to tell which is which. So that's the reason why we're not supposed to judge because what matters most is the inward, the inward aspect of the kingdom. And that's what John's telling. Because if you're right inside, if you're right in your inner man, if your spirit man is right with the Lord, you are going to bear fruit in keeping with that repentance. It's going to be an outward example in the form of fruit. People are going to be able to see that. So what is fruit? Well, Paul tells us that the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are the fruits of the spirit. Otherwise, it's just leaves. Otherwise, it just looks like a healthy tree, but there's nothing on there that's going to nourish others and be a blessing to the Lord. In Mark 11, Jesus is walking alongside the road and he sees a fig tree and it's in leaf. And so he walks over there because he's hungry. He wants to get something to eat. And when he gets there, he finds out that there's no fruit on the tree. And he curses the fig tree and it withers up from the roots because there was no fruit on the tree. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. Jesus was hungry and he was looking for fruit that would satisfy. And I would say to you that he is still looking for fruit from you and me that would satisfy and be a blessing to him. We can bless the Lord with our worship, but we can also bless the Lord with our fruit, the fruit that comes out of our lives when we have faith and trust in the Lord. You know what Jesus did next? I found this interesting. He looks for fruit. There isn't any. He curses the fig tree. Then he goes into Jerusalem and cleanses the temple. He goes into the place where there's lots of religious activity, lots of, you know, commotion going on, but no real fruit. He sees people buying and selling animals, exchanging money. Looks like there's sacrifices going on, people that are repentance, but it's not real repentance. And so he cleans house, literally cleans his house, drives them out. 
That's why John's telling them, even now the axe is laid at the root of the tree. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Saying time is short, guys. The axe is laid to the root. Have you ever seen somebody who's getting ready to chop something down and they put the axe up against the tree where they're going to strike first? So it's kind of like they're aiming where they're going to hit. And they've laid the axe to the tree and they're getting ready to reach back and chop the tree. And that's what he's saying. He's saying the axe is laid to the root. He's about to raise it up. And when it comes down and he brings judgment down, he's going to cut the tree down and he's going to throw it in the fire. It's time to stop pretending. It's a wake-up call to those that are just playing at church. The Messiah is here. People really had no excuse in that day to miss the Messiah, to miss who Jesus was, because John was telling them plainly, he is the king. He's here. He says in verse 11, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew his task, but he also knew his position. He was a forerunner. He was the messenger. He didn't try to take the spotlight. He didn't try to take any credit. He said, I am only the voice of one crying in the wilderness. In John 1.19, says, and this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm not the Messiah. I'm the messenger. In fact, I'm not even worthy to carry his sandals. One of the lowest jobs that a servant had to do was to clean people's feet, to take off their sandals and to clean their feet. I mean, we wear sandals, you know, and all kinds of things during the summertime, but we're walking around on roads. We don't have a real good, you know, mind picture of what this would have been like. They're walking down dusty streets. There's animals everywhere. If you were to put on sandals and walk through a pasture, right, and then through the woods, and then take a look at your feet and what they look like. You might have a really good idea of what people's feet look like when they came through the door. And a servant's job was to take their shoes off and clean them. And it wasn't a pretty picture. That's why at the Last Supper, when Jesus took the towel and wrapped it around his waist and he picked up the basin of water and he went over to Peter, that's why Peter freaked out. He's like, this is the job of the lowest servant. You are not going to do that to me. Teachers don't do that kind of stuff. And Jesus said, that's right. Not the world's, not the world's teachers, but if you want to follow me, if you want to be like me, you need to take the position of a servant. Servant, And John says, he's so much greater than I am, I'm not even worthy to remove the sandals. Like the lowest job a servant could do is to remove the sandals. He's like, I'm not even worthy to remove his sandals. That's how much higher he is. But Jesus called John the greatest man that was ever born of women. John says, I'm the least. And John says, he's the greatest. So what makes for true greatness in God's economy? Four things that I'll submit. Faith, humility, obedience, and service. He had faith. We'll see this in a few weeks. But one day he's standing in the Jordan River and he sees Jesus walking by. And he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See, he knew who Jesus was. He was pointing him out. He was pointing people to Jesus. I have to imagine that 
John and Jesus had a special relationship. Uh, they were second cousins, so they were family. But I had to imagine that they had a special relationship because they were also on mission together. Jesus the Messiah and John the messenger pointing people to them, to him. He staked everything on his faith in Jesus. He was also humble. One day they were both baptizing in the river. That would have been a cool thing to see. John is baptizing in one place and Jesus is baptizing in another. And some of John's disciples come up to him. They say, listen, your cousin's down there baptizing. More people are going to him. Like a bunch of people are going to him. And John says, you know what? I'm just the best man. I'm not the groom. That's not my job. I'm the best man. Actually, my joy is now complete because what I came to do is happening. I have pointed people towards him. People are going to him. The, the best man's job is just to make much of the groom. That's all that I'm supposed to do. It's kind of like Paul writing, I have fought the good fight. I have run the race. I have kept the faith. Wouldn't it be something else if at the end of our life, we could sit there and say with knowledge, knowing I have accomplished what God set out for me to do. That would be a pretty amazing thing to be able to sit and say, I have accomplished what the Lord set out for me to do. And that's what John was saying. My joy is complete. Now I must decrease and he must increase. John was humble. He was also obedient. He didn't change the message based on what people thought, based on what people said about him. In fact, he called out King Herod. We talked about King Herod last week and how crazy he was, how suspicious and jealous he was. He killed his sons. He killed one of his wives. And when John finds out that he's living in sin, he had actually taken his brother's wife. John says, I'm going to go confront him about that. I actually watched that episode last night of The Chosen where Jesus and John, you know, meet and he says he's going to take on Herod. And Jesus is like, you know, that's probably not going to end well. John's like, doesn't matter. That's my job. Speak the truth. And it would eventually cost him his life. It's what got him killed. But he was going to be obedient no matter the cost. And you and I need to be obedient no matter the cost. It might cost us relationships, might cost us influence, but whatever that means, we need to be obedient in preaching the message of Jesus Christ. He was also a servant. His whole life was dedicated to preparing the way. His was a ministry of preparation. Remove the obstacles. His whole dress, the whole way he lived his life was a rebuke to all of the self-satisfied religious people of the day um, that were more interested in power and position in a lavish lifestyle. Uh, and the way he lived was showing people that the things that you put in your life, those are obstacles. Those things that you're setting up, uh, whether it's a, you know, whether it's things, whether it's influence, whether it's pursuing position, all of that are obstacles towards making a path to Jesus. A servant's job is to do the bidding of the master, to make sure that everything is ready, that everything is in place when he walks into the room. And that's what John was doing. He was making sure that things were ready when Jesus walked in. Those are the things that made John great. Faith, humility, obedience, and service. Okay, verse 12. He will baptize you with Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. I had an interesting meeting this week. Uh, I drove to Jamesport for a meeting. Uh, long ways. I was not expecting that. The guy said, well, I'm in Jamesport 
was all right, there's nothing going on at the office. He'll get me out. I'll drive to Jamesport. And it was a guy who had left the Amish community. It's kind of interesting. Um, it, not a lot of people leave the Amish community. And he lives in Jamesport in Amish town. So it was a hard thing for him to do to leave that community, but he did. And he now is part of a non-denominational church plant. I love non-denominational ch- you know, church plants. <laughs> um, and so we got to talking about the Bible and about Jesus, and we probably spent about a half hour just talking about uh, the Lord. And he asked me the question about the Holy Spirit. He said, well, where do you, where do you land on the Holy Spirit and you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit and him moving in our day and age? And it was really interesting because, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of Christians that believe that the gifts and the movings of the Holy Spirit, all healings and speaking in tongues, all that stuff ended when the apostles died. They believe that none of that stuff applies for today. And I'm not quite sure how you arrive at that conclusion, that miracles don't happen today because they do, and that the Spirit's not moving today because he does. And speaking in tongues and all of those things are biblical. Uh, Jesus didn't say, when I leave, I'm sending you the comforter. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. But once you die, everybody else after you is just going to have to do the best they can until I come back. Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And if he said, I'm sending you a comforter, then he's sending him. This is the age of the Holy Spirit that we live in. So it was a really interesting conversation. And I said, You know, this Sunday, we're talking about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist says that when Jesus comes, he's going to baptize us in Holy Spirit and in fire. And it was very distinct from the water baptism that John was performing. His was a baptism of repentance and preparation. That was his job, prepare the way. And once you were baptized in water, once you were cleansed, then you were ready for the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Because once the Holy Spirit comes in, it purifies our hearts And then it begins the refining process of working sin out of our lives. Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, it will convict the world of sin. So when the Holy Spirit comes to live inside you, once you accept Jesus as your Savior and you're baptized in water, it starts to convict you of sin. The things that you didn't used to think much about, you didn't think they were wrong. Now all of a sudden they bother you. Uh, You have what we call a check in our spirit, right? Because now our spirit man is warring with our flesh. When we said that Jesus didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Last week I said that when Jesus enters the picture, there's going to be pain and there's going to be separation. It's always the way it is. Because now you have a war going on inside of you, your spirit man wrestling against your flesh. And we talked about that winnowing process. Uh, when, you went through, when we went through the book of Ruth, those of you who are with us, we talked about how they dumped all of you know, the things that they had gleaned into the threshing floor. The threshing floor was a place of separation. John said that his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he's separating. He's doing separation, again, the wheat from the, from the chaff. And when they gathered all that wheat, they dumped it on the threshing floor, and they had these big forks, and what they would do is they would wait till the evening time when the breezes were blowing, and they would scoop it up, and they would throw it in the air, and the heavier wheat would fall to the ground, but everything that was light, all the stuff they called chaff, everything that wasn't, uh, the grain would just get blown away in the wind. And so they would repeat this process over and over again, throwing it up in the air, and the chaff was blowing away, and the wheat was falling down. And what this symbolized was the real stuff from the fluff, the holy from the sinful, the true believers from those who reject him. 
And John's telling people, he says, you better get ready. The king is coming. The the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. And when the king arrives, judgment begins. The two are inseparable. The king and judgment. Make your choice. There's a separation that's taking place in our world today, in the church today. We're told that in the last days, the love of many will grow cold. And there'll be a falling away from the truth. Uh, There's a big buzzword in the church today called deconstruction. And I don't have time to go into it, but basically people that were raised in the church um, have become adults and they no longer believe what they were raised to believe. They are doubting their faith. They're having a crisis of faith. And so instead of going back to the word and saying, what does the word say? Let me ground my life here. They bring the word down and say, well, this is what I believe. And so they try to make the Bible fit what they think their life should be like, or they just walk away from the faith altogether. So they're beginning to deconstruct. That's a big word right now as people, young people, young adults are looking at their faith because they never made it theirs. They never owned their faith. It may have been their parents' faith or their family's faith, but they never made it their own. And now they're questioning, this doesn't really match up with my lifestyle, what I believe. And so instead of going back and holding up the mirror and bringing their lives into line with the word, they decide to make the word fit into their life or they just walk away from God altogether. We need a call to repentance, to turn away from the world and to turn towards holiness. That was the message of John. The king is coming. You need to repent, change direction, remove the obstacles from your life and make a path back to him. Because if you don't separate yourself from the world, he'll do the separating. And when he does the separating, he's going to gather the wheat into his barn, into heaven, and the chaff into the fire to be burned up. That's what John's telling them. You need to get your lives right. There's a town in Canada called Wabush. And Wabush was completely isolated for a long period of time. But... They built a road into Wabash. They cut a path through the wilderness to get to this little town because you used to only be able to fly in. You couldn't get in there any other way. And there was a mining town that they had started there. And eventually, they, they carved a road through the wilderness. There was one way in and there was one way out. And if somebody wanted to travel the unpaved road for about six to eight, six to eight hours to get to Wabush, there was only one way that he or she could get back out, and that was by turning around. Each of us by birth, arrives at a town called Sin. And as in this little town of Wabush, there's only one way out. And the road was carved by God. And you have to take that road to get back to him. You have to turn back around. That complete about face is what the Bible calls repentance. And without it, there's no way back to the king. We have to repent. We have to change direction, change course, remove the obstacles from our life to get back to him. That was the message of John. And I love John the Baptist. Uh, I love, I'm really excited to meet him one day when we get to heaven um, and just kind of see what kind of personality he was. Um, But, you know, it's a great example of simplicity in the message not overstating things, not trying to convince people, not trying to argue with them, simply saying, your life is out of joint. You need to repent. You need to come back in line with Jesus because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And that's what we need to do in our circles of influence, in our family, wherever we go. When we see friends and family that are 
um, marching in the wrong direction to say, listen, I love you too much to let you keep going this way. You may not like me. This may offend you, but I love you too much not to offend you and deliver that message of truth.